Thank you so much just for the opportunity to worship. It was just such a neat experience to have um, communion with the, uh, with the core team. Um, this is my first time at uh, Clarity Church. Any other first-timers out there? Can I see your hands? It's kind of hard. You know, I mean, it's not hard to find the place, but when you're, when you're a communicator, it's hard to get invited to speak because Phil's a great preacher. And so, you know, over the years, I've just, you guys have started, I just kind of hinted a little bit and said, you know, um, Phil, I'd really like, you got a great thing going, God's working. Um, it'd be nice now that I'm not a senior pastor to get invited and Phil would just, um, Russ, that's great. I think that's awesome, but I just don't think you're ready. And so, you know, another year would go by, I'd kind of, you know, handle my own disappointment and get my feelings and stuff together and then come back and, you know, thought maybe in the spring or something, give him a break before Easter. And Russ, I appreciate it, but you're just not ready. And so I've been getting a little bit more emphatic, I guess, and I, I know that's sad, but I said, you know, Phil, I will come and speak for free. And Phil said, now you're ready. Now you're ready. I really um, appreciate the opportunity just to kind of um, add my voice to Phil's. We're going to have a conversation today around a really important topic, Christian maturity, and a topic that um, there's a lot of nonsense per square inch out there about what maturity is and isn't. And so... The fact that you are going to, wait for it, wait for it, gain clarity on maturity. Did you like that? Nice segue, okay. Because there are a lot of folks in the body of Christ who think they're mature and they aren't. There are also a lot of men and women in the body of Christ who don't think they're very mature and yet they are. And Jesus is going to flip our traditional concepts of what maturity looks like on its head. And some of us are going to be really challenged to really stop and say, are the activities and the things that I've really felt are pleasing to God and demonstrating that I'm a mature believer, are those really the things I ought to be doing? Some of you... who really have been experiencing God speaking to you at a much deeper level are going to be really encouraged. You might be farther along than you think. So let's look at the first picture. Um, I'm going to change the metaphor a little bit from a tree to, um, to an iceberg. What Jesus is basically going to teach us this morning through the word is that if most of our evidence of maturity is above the waterline, something's wrong. We're much more complex. We're much deeper. We're not just what you can see. In fact, so when you were during the worship time, when you saw someone like myself or 
uh, another person raising their hands. That's what's above the waterline. Oh, thank you. What Jesus is going to help us understand is that it's what's below the waterline. Because in reality, you watch someone like myself or another person um, you know, raise their hands, have an expression on their face. And in all truthfulness, you don't know, do you? You don't know for sure what's going on down here. I could have been thinking about um, my granddaughter's soccer tournament later today. I could have been thinking about a number of things, but if I looked around and thought, oh, this is the time when people raise their hands, and I thought, I don't want people to look around and go, well, the speaker's not particularly spiritual. He doesn't have his hands up. I thought, boy, you know, I want to be viewed as a person. And so sometimes our spirituality can be surface. And Jesus is going to encourage us that we want to go deeper. All of us have this external and internal life. All of us have a seen and unseen public and private aspect. We have a subconscious life and an emotional life that Part of why clarity exists is to help give you a community where some of that stuff that's below the waterline can come to the surface. Some of your gifts and abilities, some of how God's wired you, can actually come up to the surface and be received and encouraged and celebrated. And some of the hurts, hang-ups, and habits that are below the waterline that we don't show people. We're embarrassed about. We have regrets about. Having a Christian community or a place where you can come and even the parts of our underwater brokenness can be surfaced when we're ready and can be accepted and received with grace and with a desire for us to heal and understanding that's really what a mature body of Christ um, does. And let me give you an illustration of how, how this happens, and you'll, you'll get this. Just to illustrate above the waterline and below the waterline, take the way that we do apologies in our culture, okay? Take the difference between I'm sorry, which is really a request to be excused, our language has the, I owe you an apology, right? I screwed up. Nobody's perfect, so let's stop talking about this. The difference between that, which is above the waterline, and something much deeper, which is what the Bible calls a confession, and to look someone that you have hurt in the eye, in the heart, and say these statements, I was wrong. I know that I hurt you, and if I don't fully understand how I've hurt you, I need you to tell me. Will you forgive me? And now I have to wait for an answer. Why? Because forgiveness cannot be demanded from another person. And then the last statement is, how can I make this right? That's confession happens out of our accessing what's below the waterline. This is why David in Psalm 51, after a whole year of sort of pretending like his affair with Bathsheba and his um, setting up of the murder of her husband Uriah had never happened. Just, you know, when you're king, you can kind of go on like, 
okay, nothing to see here. God sends a prophet to confront the king who's been in denial about his sin for you. How would you have liked that job? You know, you're, you're one of God's servants, okay, and he speaks to you in a dream and he goes, hey, today I got a special assignment for you. I want you to go confront the king and tell him he's a nimrod. So you know that story. And in Psalm 51, David goes from the top, the surface, above the waterline, down deeper. And he goes, God, when I think about the fact that you desire truth in the innermost part, you want me to go deep against you and against you only have I sinned. He still needs to deal with the stuff up here with Bathsheba and the perceptions of the people. <clears throat> but if, if David didn't get this part right, he never would have gotten past this terrible season in his life. He never would have been able to grow through that. So let's look at some core truths that we're going we're gonna to sort of walk around this morning. Here's the first one. We all need to grow up spiritually. Ephesians 4 says that as all of the spiritual gifts in the church work together, the whole point is that we all grow up together. That means nobody gets left behind. That means there's no judgment about where you are in your spiritual journey. That just means together as a body, and Paul says as each part does its job, as some people do setup, as some people do greeting, as some people do teaching, as some people do encouragement and counseling, and as all parts of the body do their job, use their spiritual gift, guess what? Not only do, not only do I grow up as a Christ follower, but we grow up together into the image of what God has always longed for Clarity Church to be. That's an, that's an incredible, beautiful thing. We all need to grow up. Secondly, spiritual maturity is a deep, continual work of God in our life. Sometimes we get stuck, right? Sometimes we get stuck. There's a legitimate season to our childhood as a believer. Peter talks about the fact that as a newborn babe in Christ, we're to really desire and long for the word and fellowship. And just like babies make a mess, and babies don't always get it right, and babies are learning, and babies are a sponge... All of that good stuff. At some point, we ought to be growing because the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 5, <clears throat> he's, he's talking to the believers and saying, you know, by this time, some of you should have been teachers. Some of you should have been farther along. And sometimes we get stuck. One of my first churches, I had uh, just really sweet couple, Ed and Kathy, who are in the youth ministry, and they had this beautiful baby, that was born to them, a little girl. And, um, you know, I'm kind of busy at church, and I'm kind of, you know, I went to visit them, and then I'm kind of waiting for kind of the text that, okay, we're home, and days go by, weeks go by, and now I'm starting to talk to Ed and go, hey, are you guys okay? And he goes, well, um, we, can't get, we can't get our daughter to nurse. She has no interest, no hunger. Um, we're force-feeding her right now, but she just keeps getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And about six weeks later, that precious little girl passed away. And on her death certificate was this little phrase. It's a medical term. Failure to thrive. 
No other great medical reason. There just was a failure to thrive. And so if you and I find ourselves, that's one of the incredible um, beauties and importance about this, doing this series together, is we get to have permission to raise our hand and go, I'm doing well, I want to do better, or I'm doing really well and I need some affirmation that I'm growing in the right ways, or I'm stuck and I need help. I'm stuck and I need help. I'm experiencing some spiritual failure to thrive. Here's the last point. The clearest evidence of spiritual maturity. And I want you to think about this because this might be counterintuitive to you. The clearest evidence of spiritual maturity is emotional maturity. Phil mentioned, I think, last week, I watched the video, great message last week. If you were away on uh, Memorial Day and you didn't get to see it, go online, watch the video. Very, very good teaching. I really enjoyed it immensely. But he mentioned that the series is not only foremost based on Scripture, but it's also based on the work of uh, Dr. Peter Scazzaro, who wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and talks a lot about how, as a pastor of a large church in New York, several thousand people, And I'm going to borrow a phrase from another Christian leader, but it fits that book. He said, I woke up one day and realized the way in which I was doing the work of God was destroying the work of God in me. The way I was being a husband and a father, the way I was being a go-go boy for Jesus and everything in the church revolved around me. The way I was unaware of how my upbringing had influenced my need for approval how the brokenness in my family of origin had really handicapped me in being a person of health, a Christ follower of health, a loving partner in a marriage, and a really good parent. When I woke up and when I saw I really had to look below the waterline, that's when he began to get material to write the book. It also didn't hurt that his wife actually came to him one day so this is pastor's wife, several thousand people in the church. And she goes, I quit. Jerry just said, I quit. The person who's up there speaking on Sunday morning is not the person who is living in our house. And until those two come together, I'm going to the church down the street. <laughs> Talk about a gutsy lady. Yay for her. Give her a hand. This is years ago. Here's another way to think about it on the next slide. Spiritual depth is revealed in emotional health. And emotional vitality is a strong sign of spiritual maturity. So I want us to look at Galatians chapter 5 because that's really where this concept comes from. And I'd like us to just read it together. But the fruit... Oh, yep, there you go. Let's read it together. But the fruit of the Spirit... Well, <clears throat> time out. That means like you, okay? Audience participation time. Hit the person next to you and go, this, wake up, this is a good time for us to... Okay, here we go. But the fruit of the Spirit is slow, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, 
there is no law. The metrics of maturity in the Bible, the way God and Jesus measure spiritual health in our life, is by looking in our lives for the evidence of emotional health. Notice how many of those phrases, how many of those words actually deal with emotional maturity, love, joy. Now they have expression outward, right? I can't just be a loving person in my head. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, that means patience. It literally means putting up with stuff that's not going to change. A very important footnote for those of you who are married. Kindness. Literally in scripture, the word kindness means to lend one's strength to someone else. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Next slide. I want you to think about this. Emotional health, and this is the this is the the foundation, not of scripture, but it's the foundation that comes out of the series. Emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. In other words, you can't have one without the other. Why? Because all of the activity that's above the waterline, good stuff like being faithful in church, helping to serve, um, expressions of kindness, all of that needs to flow out of a healthier under the waterline, less visible, less public. Scripture says, we are to become new in the innermost part of our life. Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a person thinks in their heart, so are they. I ran into a... um, I, I happened to be on the board of Minnesota Association of Christian Counselors, and I was at a, um, a seminar down in Rochester, and the speaker happened to be a, a, a prominent Christian psychiatrist from Mayo Clinic, and she, she made this statement, and I was turning it over in my mind, and I'm, I'm not really sure what to think about, so I'm going to throw it out for you, and if the rest of the message didn't apply, maybe this will be good for you to talk about later. But she said this, she said, I don't think I have to be a moral person to be a good shrink. I took that to mean I don't have to have what's above the waterline and what's below the waterline connected. There's a lot of talk about this today, isn't there? Think of how many tweets and how many... um, Newsfeed things come out about politicians who something was found out about their past and now what's being called into question is can you have an effective life as a public above the waterline political figure if what's below the waterline is not so great? So why is my emotional and spiritual health so important? Number one, it's how I grow to be like Jesus. The goal of spiritual maturity is that we would become like Christ, right? Paul says that Christ, the the goal of maturity is, and, and Paul says, I think it's in the book of Galatians, he said, 
I'm in turmoil like a woman who's pregnant. I don't know. I, ladies, ladies who knew Paul would probably go, nah, Paul, I, I understand the metaphor. You have no idea. But Paul says, I'm like in the pains of childbirth for you. That Christ be, I'm longing and yearning and working that Christ be formed in you. And our example is Jesus in Luke 2.52. It says, Jesus, now this is going to blow your mind. Because we kind of think that Jesus was God in a bod, shoved into a womb, and he's all, it's all there, right? And no, nothing needed to happen. I mean, he's God, for goodness sake. But Luke writes in chapter 252, he says this, and Jesus increased, that meant he matured in wisdom, which is intellectual, in stature, which is physical, and in favor with God, which is spiritual, and in favor with man, which is social. Jesus is our model. Emotional and spiritual health are so important. So the question is, if I want to ask, am I growing in my faith? I shouldn't primarily look to activities. There's nothing wrong with activities, but activities and busyness, what's above the waterline, is not going to tell you, it's not going to tell me what I really need to know. What I really need to know if I want to have the right metrics of maturity is to ask this question, how much more do I look like Jesus today than I did last year? And it's very specific in Galatians, right? Am I a more loving person than I was a year ago? Am I a more kind person than I was a year ago? Am I a more gentle person than I was a year ago? Am I more self-controlled? Am I more patient than I was a year ago? Those are the metrics, and those are the metrics that let you know that the good stuff is happening below the waterline. Does that make sense? Spiritual maturity requires, on this next slide, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot two more. Moving along too quick. I'm looking at the countdown thing and I get shot with water if I go over here. So. so, you know, back to the first one. It's how I grow to be like Jesus. It's how I live out my true self. This is about authenticity. There are two things that you and I cannot change about ourselves. Ourselves. That's below the waterline. One is how I have been wired uniquely by God. Because he wants me wired this way. And two, my past and how I was raised, how I grew up. I can't change that. And some of that was wonderful and some of it was painful. But all of that mix is my authenticity. It's my true self. Because God's going to work on some of the broken places in my life to give him glory and for my good. I don't know if you're kind of into um, C.S. Lewis and the Narnian Chronicles, but in, in, in one of the books, um, I think it's a little mouse, Reepicheep is asking Aslan, the Christ figure, why was that one hurt so much? Why did that one have to go through all of that? And I think it, it referred to the pulling off of the scales. Um, and Aslan says this, and so you put these in words in the mouth of God. He says this, 
I tell no one anyone's story but their own. And so there's a part of your authenticity about why you grew up in the home you did, why you are wired the way that actually God says in Ephesians 2, that is my workmanship, that is my poema, that is my masterpiece. And even though some parts of it are painful and some parts of it are pleasant, you are a unique person and spiritual maturity ought to give voice and visibility to the unique person that God has made you to be. That's why maturity is important. That's why a church that encourages your spiritual maturity is really important. At an authentic church, you and I should not have to hide who we really are. Now, it may take time for us to get comfortable to reveal it. There are also things about my life that bless my heart. Um, they shouldn't be revealed, not because the church isn't friendly, but because that's stuff between God and me. Does this make any sense? You know, whoever told you that, well, when you're in love, you ought to be able to say whatever, whatever is on your mind. That, that person's a lunatic. <clears throat> There's stuff that crosses my mind that never ought to see the light of day. That's called a filter. But in the body of Christ, this ought to be a place where below the water line gets known and gives you the ability to know others at a deeper level gets celebrated and allows you to celebrate others at a deeper level, gets um, the opportunity to be listened to, good and bad. One, one of the things that I do as a crisis marriage counselor, it's one of the things I, I do divorce intervention training for pastors, for therapists, for family law attorneys, and I have to teach them this one skill, and it wasn't intuitive to me as a pastor so I had to learn it. But it's the ability to just simply hold two people. Two people are sitting in front of you. One wants to stay married and one doesn't. But to be able to hold both of their stories, to be able to listen for maybe the first time to what's below the waterline and let it just sit there and not be judged and not be criticized, not be corrected, but just let it be there. Emotional and spiritual health allows you in an ever-increasing measure to be able to look at what's below the waterline and to bring it in a figurative way to the Lord and say, God, what do you want to do with this? Is this something that you've really designed that you want me to celebrate? You want me to take some risks so that I can grow in this thing that you've given? Lord, here are some hurts, hang-ups, um, and habits that I have. What do you want? me to do with them. I know that they're hindering my walk. How do you want me to begin to engage these? A church that lets you do that is a church that's going to help you grow up in Christ. Thirdly, it's so important because it's how you and I guard against fake hypocrisy, fake faith. You know, Christians who say one thing and do another, spiritual maturity requires two things. And this is, this is sort of just reinforcing what we've said. One looking below the waterline, and secondly, it's letting God transform the deeper places of my heart. And so this is what Jesus is going to get at in our text this morning. Some of you are saying, I am glad you got around to that because you don't have much time left. So either on the screen or on your app, uh, Matthew 15 is where we're going to be. 
Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these were the professionals of, of the Jewish religion in that day, came from Jerusalem. That phrase is important because it's like Danielle and Phil knocking on your door. You know, the big guns are here and they want to ask you questions. Or it could be that, you know, representatives from the archdiocese came and uh, are knocking on your door or maybe the faculty from University of Northwestern. But they've got some stuff they want to talk to Jesus about. And so they ask, why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? Why don't they wash their hands before they eat? This is an issue of authority. Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, how come your followers aren't doing what our followers do? How come you don't understand that our teaching is really important? And what you kind of have to understand here is that the, the Jewish leaders, bless their heart, over the years added over 600 additional laws to the Old Testament. Now, if you've ever gone through the Old Testament just because you didn't have anything else to do and you started to read through Leviticus and the Hubigots and the entrails of the offerings and all of the, all of the things that were um, in, just important and symbolic for that day, the Jewish leaders thought, we don't have enough of these. We're going to add 600 more. And that's what they were talking about. Now, washing their hands, that sounds like a good thing, right? I've got two grandsons that yesterday went from playing in the mud in our yard to eating pizza and never skipped a beat. <laughs> Mel and I were out in L.A. last week, and we had a chance to go to Disneyland. Yay! And we went through a whole box of hand sanitizers. I know this is going to gross you out, but this is true. Just take it from me. I think less than 50% of the men that use public restrooms wash their hands. And they go straight from the restroom to the concession stand at most theaters, just, just to make you uncomfortable. This wasn't about, are my hands clean before I eat? This was about ritual, and it was about a reality of ceremonially washing my hands so that you would know that I'm different than you. Here's some examples. Washing of hands when one wakes from sleep. You had to pour out water from three different vessels at three different times intermittently over each hand. This washing was said or thought to remove evil spirits from your fingers or other things. Washing of hands before prayer. Washing your hands after you touched private parts. Washing your hands after you touched a dead person. Washing your hands after body sweats. Cutting your fingernails. Leaving a cemetery. When you've eaten or touched bread made of certain grains. Except fruit. Why fruit got a pass? I don't know, but I like fruit, so I think that's a good thing. Jesus, if your disciples were really mature, they would not only understand we have gone uber-spiritual, but they would be doing it too. And so Jesus takes issue with that in verse 3. Jesus replied, notice that Jesus doesn't answer their question. Jesus, why don't you do this? Why are you breaking our traditions? And when Jesus doesn't answer your question, get ready. Notice now, because Jesus understands this is about a power play, he said, okay, you're hung up on the tradition of the elders, and the authority and the separateness and the, the, um, the sense of maturity that that gives you? You're asking me about why do I break those human laws? 
Why do you break the commandment of God, of Yahweh, who is so sacred to them, they don't even pronounce his name. There are no vowels in Yahweh. The Orthodox Jew doesn't even dare pronounce the name. Why do you break his commandments for the sake of your tradition? Now this is where it gets good. For God said, honor your father and mother. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. I want you to chew on that a little bit. Here's what I want you to take away from that. Um, I, I don't want you to start putting, if you're a parent, to start gathering rocks in your backyard if your kids are struggling. Here's what God was trying to say. Family, and especially the reverence due parents, is very, very important. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they're not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. Here's what they, here's what they were doing. <clears throat> the Old Testament says that when we are in a family, we are to return to our parents. And family is so important. Every Jew knew this. We have a responsibility and an obligation that if there is a need, that we take, family takes care of family. If you're Italian, you know exactly what this means, and the hand things kind of, you know, touches your background, right? Because you can't talk without using your hand. Here's what the Pharisees were doing. They were always looking for loopholes in true spirituality, always looking for loopholes to go deeper. <clears throat> they said, yep, the Bible says that. God's blessed us to be able to bless our family, but, but, if you take all of your resources and your wealth and you put it in an account, you put it in a trust fund and you label it God's finances, then when your parents have need, you go, oh, mom and dad, I would so like to help you. But all of my stuff is tied up for God. And Jesus is saying, Nimrod, the reason God blessed you with that stuff is that so you could fulfill what God really wanted you to do and go below the waterline and say, I will sacrifice and go without to take care of my parents in order to not only obey the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Now in verse 10, Jesus called the crowd and said, and what we, what's not clear from the text is whether the Pharisees were over here and the crowd was over here and the disciples or whether they were all mixed together. Oftentimes they were sort of an earshot of each other. But now because what Jesus is going to teach is so important, doesn't want anybody to miss it, he calls the crowd together and he says this, listen and understand. I don't know if Jesus did this, but it could be like, hey, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. Really? I thought if you ate food when your hands weren't ceremonially, ceremonially washed, that's hard to say backward. If your hands weren't washed according to the Pharisees, you would be unacceptable to God. You would have defiled yourself. But Jesus goes on and says, it's not what goes into someone's mouth that defiles them, but what comes out of their mouth that defiles them. 
And the crowd thought, wow, that is so radical. So God's not looking to make sure that I cross the T's and dot the I's. God, God isn't displeased with me because I'm not following the rules or something else. What is this thing about what comes out of my mouth that could defile me? So in verse 12, the disciples who are ever attentive and ever on top of Jesus' teaching, the disciples came to him in verse 12 and asked, don't you know that the Pharisees were yea verily ticketh off with you when they heard this? Don't you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? <clears throat> Duh, and just a little, um, I'm, I'm making a leap here. This might be Berg, not Bible, okay? But it just seems to me, especially it resonates in the context of our, of our series, that rather than the disciples who have been with Jesus and heard this teaching, rather than them saying, wow, this is going to be hard, they were worried about what the Pharisees thought about themselves. They were self-absorbed. They were worried that someone wasn't going to approve of them not doing. Jesus, are we in trouble because we ate without washing? And Jesus is so kind. And in verse 16, he says this, are you still so dull? That Jesus never does that disrespectfully. He does it to get our attention. Has that ever happened to you or to me? It's like the fifth time I've heard this message from Phil. I've sat under his teaching, and it's part of the core of how his heart beats, but I just got it today. Are you so still so dull? Jesus asked them. Verse 17, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then goes out of the body. So all of you are a little bit squeamish. Jesus is just getting really, he's going, um, dudes and dudettes. What comes in goes into the digestive system and then gets eliminated. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from what? Come from the heart and these defile in a negative sense, or defined them in a positive sense. Because what's below the waterline can be positive and negative, right? It can be healthy and unhealthy. Jesus is just focused, responding to the Pharisees and what's unhealthy. In verse 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile them. It just may put more germs in your poop. The Pharisees believed that defilement came from what went in you. Jesus taught that defilement comes from what comes out from below the waterline. It wasn't the 10% of the iceberg that the Titanic should have been worried about. It was the 90% below the waterline that it didn't see. So here's what I want you to remember. Jesus is not lowering the bar for maturity. He's raising it. Some people think, oh, you know, this is that grace teaching. You know, God covers everything. You don't need to pay attention to your... 
Jesus is not saying that. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And Jesus said, if our righteousness does not go beyond the Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's what he meant. The Old Testament said, do not commit adultery. If you don't do the act, you're fine. The New Testament, Jesus says what? If I look on a woman with lust, I've already committed adultery in my heart. The Old Testament, divorce was permissible if you gave them the correct thing and if you let them know why you were divorcing them. You found someone who was cuter. This was also a power play in that culture. Men routinely, even in the, in, um, in the nation of Israel, routinely dismissed their wives for ungodly and stupid reasons. So the Old Testament, as long as you do it correctly, give them a writ of divorce, which Jesus later tells us in the New Testament. The only reason Moses did that for you was to accommodate the hardness of your heart. Guys, what had been below the waterline in your life had become so encrusted that this was actually mercy to release women from a person who was not going to change. What is it in the New Testament? In the New Testament, divorce is only permissible if there is moral uncleanness. We get the word, uh, the word that's used in the, in the Gospels is porneo. We get the word pornographic from that. And that even when there has been moral failure on the part of a husband or a wife, the biblical standard of maturity is to, if at all possible, try to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. To at least try. Jesus did not come to lower the metrics for maturity. He came to deepen them so that whatever I do above the waterline is not done out of guilt. It's done out of gratitude. It's not done out of conformity. It's done out of being transformed so that it may sound like this. As a Christ follower under grace, I commit adultery every time I want to but I don't want to because of God's grace. Because of my love for him. Could I struggle with it? Absolutely. Is there grace for that struggle? Absolutely. But the reason that I stay faithful to my wife is not for fear that God's not going to bless me. It's not for fear of how it will look. The reason that I work to stay faithful to my wife is because Jesus worked at being faithful to the call of his father and faithful to the friendships in his life and faithful even unto death to the mission that God had given him. Jesus is my model, not guilt. So back again as we kind of land the plane. Spiritual maturity requires these two things and the two things that I want you to think about engaging as you go through this series. One, I need to look below the waterline, as scary as that is. I need to do that. Why? Because if I only look at what's above the waterline, if I only look at the externals, I may actually change my behavior without ever changing my character in my heart. Secondly, I need to let Christ touch and transform this place. Sometimes the transformation is, Russ, I've made you this way. I've gifted you with this gift. You cannot hide it. I've created you to take risks and to move in this direction. This is what I want you to do. This is how I made you. Don't hide it because of the approval of others. Don't hide it because of the risk of failure. This is a good thing. 
Sometimes the transforming work of God is about courage. Sometimes the transforming work of God is about correction. I may have had patterns that I grew up with. I may have fallen into habits and acquired hurts and hang-ups that God wants to bring conviction in my life to get me over those, to heal those. But here's an interesting thing. When you and I are pursuing Christian maturity, the Spirit of God brings conviction, but never condemnation. Why? Because Romans 8 says, you and I are in Christ, and in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Okay, next slide. I just wanted to show this to you. If you'd like to pursue this, this is part of an inventory that you can take. You can go online to emotionallyhealthyspirituality.com. If you don't find it there, email Danielle and Phil. It's a whole inventory that'll go through a number of really important areas of your life just with questions. And will help give you a little bit of guidance in terms of what areas of your life are really strong that need to be celebrated, what areas below the waterline maybe need some attention, and we'll make that available to you. I'd encourage you to take it and, and, and then to talk about it. Okay, lastly, as you grow, here's what emotionally healthy believers look like, all right? Here's the goal. Four things. One, as I grow in my faith, as I grow and mature in my walk with God, there should be an integration of my faith and my everyday life. I think Phil mentioned this last week when he talked about the 10 symptoms of unhealthy spirituality. When we compartmentalize our life into spiritual and sacred, there should be an integration of my faith in my daily life. Secondly, there should be a real balance of doing and being. You are loved by God because you are his creation and his child by faith, period. You may have grown up and you may um, have, uh, I sat on the plane yesterday to um, a gal who's probably in her 30s and I, I got tired just watching her work. She was an executive who was on the phone, um, clearly, clearly smart and gifted and, and upper level. She had uh, I would not be surprised she had hundreds of people to manage below her. But my heart just wondered, I, I wonder if this precious woman knows that there is a God in heaven that loves her just because he created her and loves her, not because she's a star performer in the company, but loves her just because he set his love on her. From before the creation of the world, Psalm 31 says, I knew you in your mother's womb. The balance of being and doing means that whatever we do, we do not to gain favor with God, but to demonstrate our gratitude for what he's done. Thirdly, an awareness of how the inner life and outer life interact with each other. Have you ever said something and went, where'd that come from? It's just really funny to me. I mean, when you watch the Twitter feeds and stuff, somebody will blurt out an expletive. Someone will just trash someone else on the internet. And then if they get pushback or sponsors want to, you know, to leave them, okay, they'll go, well, 
um, I misspoke, I should have had a filter, okay? But notice what they were saying is, my behavior above the waterline wasn't wrong, I just needed a vertical filter so that it sounded better, right? Here's what Jesus says, when my inner life bursts into my outer life in a negative way, think of volcano, think of Hawaii, think of Big Island. It's not about needing a filter. It's not about crossing a line. That's a phrase that we use today. It's not about crossing a line vertically. I should have been nicer to you. I should have fill in the blank. It's about crossing the line horizontally. Because in the moment that I used that exploit, the moment that I trashed you publicly, the moment that all of this venom came out, I wasn't demonstrating that I needed a filter and I crossed the line. I was demonstrating what actually is in my heart. Because Jesus said, as a person thinks in their heart, so is out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus said, the mouth speaks. And then thirdly, embracing a lifelong journey of growth and maturity. You you are not who you once were, by God's grace, neither am I. And you are not who you are going to be. And it's going to be a journey. So in this walk of maturity, make sure that you're a pilgrim and not a tourist. Because tourists pull the ripcord when they're tired of the experience. Pilgrims know the destination of my pilgrimage, heaven, is absolutely secure. And it doesn't really matter how long or how curvy the road is to get there. All I need to do is one step at a time follow Jesus who grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray together.